My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of this commentary. This is the audio companion, the podcast version of Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day of assembly. If you have the written notes, pick up our discussion with me on the bottom of page 10 or the top of page 11. Okay? You know, we've been talking about this topic of Shilmer Mitzvot, keeping the commandments. And we talked about how that um, there's no excuse for us to walk it out legalistically or mechanically. And that's, of course, because if the Holy Spirit has circumcised your heart, then you will have a heart to do God's ways. And there will be no excuse for the coldness and the, the, the um, uh, how should we say, the, the ritualistic aspect of walking in the commandments. The, the, um, there's no room for legalism is what I'm trying to say. However, we are still generally, in the 21st century, handicapped because within Christian camps, we have come to assume that the Torah is for Jews only. And it's no surprise that we have this position because for the last 2,000 years or so, within Christian circles, we've decided that there's no room for the Torah proper anyway. The law has been done away with at the coming, or set aside, or... um, uh, uh, suppressed with the coming of Yeshua the Messiah. Ostensibly, um, Yeshua has fulfilled the Torah so that we Christians no longer are obligated to keep it or we're no longer obligated to um, walk into it. And then when we go to our Jewish sources to gain further insight into this topic of keeping the Torah, what we find is that prevailing rabbinic halakha teaches that Jews and only Jews can walk into the five books of Moses or can walk out the Torah. In fact, we're going to talk about this a little more in the next section, Um, what we find is that within traditional Jewish camps, they historically believed, and this is going back to the first century, they historically believed that all Israel and only Israel could share a place in the world to come. Thus, if a non-Jew wished to enter into the covenant with God, made with Moses and with the people of Jacob, if a non-Jew, someone from the nations, wished to join this clan, this people group, and to uh, enjoy covenant ben- uh, covenant benefits, covenant membership, then according to first century halakha, such a person had to undergo the proselyte conversion ceremony. In simple terms, he had to become a Jew before he could keep the Torah. So let's turn now to that discussion, all right? This next section near the bottom of page 10 is entitled, Is Conversion Required for Non-Jews? You see, many non-Jews, in essence Christians, have historically argued that since Christianity has been defined as a separate entity, a part and distinct from Israel, then the issues of the Old Testament Torah are not relevant for their everyday lives. I use the word Old Testament there just for familiar terms. I don't really like that term Old Testament because it's pejorative, especially seen through the eyes of Jewish people. So um, the question of Torah obedience among said Christians likewise becomes an archaic discussion. You know, if I step into your average church and start asking uh, people, or if I just, you know, go to ask the pastor, how much of the Torah, well, I shouldn't say it that way, I should ask him, what do you think about keeping Sabbath? Well, first of all, he'll tell me Sabbath's been done away with. So you see, from there, I can no longer have a meaningful discussion on how to keep the Sabbath, because the issue of keeping the Sabbath has already been decided by the Christian church, and the answer is decidedly, we don't keep the Sabbath anymore, we keep Sunday. You understand what, I'm, what I mean by that? So, the question of Torah obedience among most Christians is an archaic discussion. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an empty discussion. There's nothing to talk about. There's, there's no more doing the Torah right or doing the Torah wrong. You know how I talked about doing it legalistically, mechanically, and things like that. Within Christian circles, there is no doing at all. There's just no Torah. It's not, it's not a topic open for discussion. Moral, moral parts of the Torah, yes, but the ceremonial and the civil, no. Those, there's nothing to talk about there. After all, the argument goes, since I'm not Israel, then all of those passages in the Old Testament don't even speak to me as a New Testament Christian anyway. Typically, that's one of the reasons given as to why um, Christians don't have to keep the Torah. It's because uh, we're not Jews. Uh, Another reason is because... um, given is because the Torah has been done away with. So it's either one of the two, usually, at least in my experience, I find it to be. And I'm not picking on Christians, and I'm not upset with Christians. I can understand their position, given the fact that um, 2,000 years of of uh, anti-Torah teaching has been handed down from one teacher to the student in, in, in an unbroken chain down to this day. So I can understand why um, prevailing Christian theology of today teaches what it teaches. In fact, the argument usually continues... From a from a garden variety Christian, something like this. If I really wanted to get into Israel, if I really wanted to become 
one with the people of Israel, if I really wanted to become Jewish, is what they're trying to say, wouldn't I have to convert anyway? Wouldn't I have to become a Jew in order to be part of Israel? That's, that's, that's typically the approach. Well, in the introduction to my Yahoo Group's weekly parashah, I made this critical distinction concerning the biblical identity of Jews and Gentiles in the corporate body known as Israel. Let's pick up the discussion as I pre-recorded it to that section there um, for my Yahoo groups, okay? You know, in his letter to Rome, Shaul wrote in chapter 3, verse 28, that God considers a person righteous on the grounds of trusting, which has nothing to do with the law, or as in KJV, it says works of law. And we're talking about the Torah. So, we look at that verse, Romans 3.28, where it says, A person is righteous on the grounds of trusting, because of their trust, which has nothing to do with the law. And, on the surface, this seems problematic for my own teachings that consider Torah observance to be of great significance, doesn't it? If we just read the verse at face value and left it as it is, taken out of context, it does seem to be saying that. Yet, the problem here is really more a matter of hermeneutics than theology. What do I mean by hermeneutics? What I mean is the way that we approach the scripture and um, mine its truths. Not so much that Paul is teaching something theologically errant. Rather, we need to um, re-study the passage. So, what I believe Shaul is really talking about when he employs the Greek phrase ergon namos, translated in this verse as works of law, is in actuality a technical phrase that the Judaisms of Shoal's day employed to speak of the halacha, that is to say the proper way in which a Jew is to walk out Torah. That's what halacha means. Indeed, as history has shown us, the prevailing view of the sages of the first century held to the common belief that Israel and Israel alone shared a place in the world to come, Thus, in this scenario, if a non-Jew, i.e. a Gentile, wished to enter into Hashem's blessings and promises, such a person had to convert to Judaism first. To be sure, this is one of the primary arguments delineated in Paul's letter to the Galatians. However, for Shaul, no such man-made conversion policy ever existed in Scripture. Where is it? It's not there. By contrast... What Shaul taught, most assuredly, was that Gentiles were grafted into Israel the same way that Avraham was counted as righteous by God in Bereshit, which is Genesis chapter 15. And how was that? Faith in the promised word of the Lord. You see how that works? Thus, the phrase, works of law, that Paul uses, and he's writing in Greek, it's, it's... uh, Ergon Namas. This phrase itself all already has a Hebrew counterpart. It's Maaseh HaTorah. And so you have to scratch your head as a Bible student and say, What meaneth Maaseh HaTorah? Glad you asked. The Dead Sea Scrolls use this phrase as well, Maaseh HaTorah. And since the discovery of those manuscripts, we now, in the 21st century, have come to know that this phrase refers to, quote, some of the precepts of the Torah, as adjudicated by the halakha and by the particular community wielding the most influence, end quote. That's more or less what Ma'aseh HaTorah means. Let me say that again. Ma'aseh HaTorah, as understood by the Dead Sea Scrolls, particularly the fragment known as 4QMMT, um, seems to refer to, as we study it, quote, some of the precepts of the Torah, end quote. And as I add, it's these precepts which are adjudicated by the halacha and by the particular community wielding the most influence over their people group. So, to be absolutely sure here, make sure we understand what Paul's dealing with, the halacha that teaches Gentile inclusion only by way of conversion, read most often in Paul's letters as circumcision itself, the word circumcision, Um, this particular viewpoint was naturally at odds with the true gospel of Gentile inclusion by faith in Yeshua plus nothing, right? In fact, if we understand that quite often, Shaul's use of the term circumcision in Galatians is actually shorthand for, quote, the man-made ritual that seeks to turn Gentiles into Jews, unquote, then the letter begins to make more sense Hebraically and contextually. So, 
With this knowledge at hand, we, the students, are now prepared to better interpret Shaul's pasuk, that is to say his verse. So let's look at his verse again. Romans, uh, let me see, what did I say? It was Romans 3.28. Let's look at the verse again. It says, A person is considered righteous by God on the grounds of trusting, which has nothing to do with the Torah. With the knowledge that we just discussed about the halakha of the proselyte conversion policy, we understand this verse really to be saying, quote, A person is considered righteous by God on the grounds of trusting, which has nothing to do with the conversion policy that seeks to make Gentiles into Jews first. That's what Paul's talking about when he says has nothing to do with the Torah. Hoy, how far we are removed from the context of Paul's letters. He uses terms that were known to his listeners, to his readership, but have become foreign to us today because we, the Western Church, have divorced ourselves from our Judaic roots, our Hebraic foundation. And being divorced from that, we can't understand the intra-Jewish uh, dialogue that's taking place in Paul's letters half the time. So, with the help of historical documents such as the Qumran texts and the um, Mishnah and, the, and the, uh, uh, the Gemara, the Talmud, I might add, we are able to unearth some of the difficult phrases that Paul was using. This next section is entitled, Law versus Grace. God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles, of this we can affirm. In fact, we read about that in Romans chapter 3, around verse 30 and 31. God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles. One need not change his station in life before God can accept them. Gentiles don't have to become Jews in order to be accepted by God. That was the problem plaguing the first century Judaisms. I might add, however that Jews do not need to become Gentiles. And that seems to be the problem facing us today. The church seems to think, in my opinion, that Jews need to forsake their Judaism in order to embrace Jesus. Leave your kosher, leave your Sabbath, leave your, your dietary laws, leave, leave your, your, your festivals. All that's done away with. In a word, leave your Jewishness in order to be accepted in God's sight. Something's wrong here, people. Because the real change that takes place in a person's life, whether he's Jewish or Gentile, is affected by the Ruach HaKodesh. When, because of Yeshua's bloody sacrificial death, the sinner, whether he be Jew or Gentile, takes on the status of righteous. Man cannot add to that which God perfects. Using the setting of first century Judaism, a conversion to Judaism, a.k.a. circumcision, in Shaul's mind, added nothing to those wishing to be counted as true Israelites in the Torah community. They didn't have to do anything as Gentiles to be accepted by God. All they needed to do was place their faith in Yeshua. And Paul was teaching them that they were accepted by God on the basis of their faith in Yeshua, not on the basis of a conversion ceremony. And certainly not, as the church might suppose, on the basis of any Torah observance. No, to Shaul, their genuine faith in the promised word of Hashem, as evidenced by the genuine working of the Spirit among them, was all the quote-unquote identity they would ever need. They didn't need to become Jews to gain any, uh, any special identity. In fact, once counted as righteous by the righteous one himself, all the new Gentile believer needed to do was to begin to walk in that righteousness, a walk already described in the pages of the written Torah, a walk formerly impossible due to the deadness of flesh and bondage to sin. Is this beginning to make sense to us now? The Torah is not our enemy. The Torah is not against the promises of God. In fact, that's what Paul says. Do we nullify faith? I'm sorry, do we nullify Torah because of faith? God forbid. What I'm trying to explain is what our responsibilities are as believers, as freed men. And since conversion is not a scriptural requirement for inclusion into Israel, then it's my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. You see, we've got to understand that our primary identity doesn't go back 
to our church uh, heritage. It doesn't go back to our Jewish heritage. It doesn't go back to our family clan. Our primary identity with God is not rooted in what country we come from, what language we speak, what denomination we were raised under. Our primary identity marker is in Christ. Not in some man-made ritual, of sure, uh, to be sure. Uh, within first century standards, this man-made ritual was designed to help those who were not born with Jewish identity to gain a supposed covenant status. No, that's not where our primary identity marker is found. Don't misunderstand me. I don't think there's anything really wrong with conversion done for the right reasons. But conversion done to ostensibly gain genuine and lasting covenant membership will never ever work within God's economy. You see, from God's perspective, all men, Jews and Gentiles, we all find ourselves in ruin before the Messiah comes into our lives. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jew and Gentile are equal in Messiah. So I want you listening to my podcast today, you, the follower of Messiah Yeshua, I want you to read the following passage that I'm about to quote here. I want you to keep in mind that the moniker Israel is really a term describing both Jews and Gentiles. Okay, That's the mystery of the Gospel, is that when we read the word Israel in the Old Testament, that we're not really primarily uh, ever reading about sons of Jacob. We are always assuming and understanding, and that's a safe assumption, that God has the Gentiles in mind uh, because he's going to bring them into the covenants with the sons of Jacob. Let's read the quote. This is Deuteronomy 10, verse uh, 12 through verse 16 out of the New International Version. Quote, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. End quote. Did you see it there, people? Israel, God's chosen, God's elect, God's amsugula, his treasured possession, is comprised really of Jews and Gentiles. Now, it doesn't say it right here in the passage. But we know this looking backwards through the lens of the apostolic scriptures, through the lens of Paul's writings. We know that Israel is going to um, be made of Jews and Gentiles. And that's the whole point. God does not break covenant with the existing people called Israel and start a new covenant uh, agreement with the new group of people called the church or new Israel. It doesn't work that way. See, knowing that Israel is comprised of Jews as well as Gentiles who have joined themselves to the Lord actually causes this passage to take on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? We read it suddenly and realize that we, the non-sons of Jacob, the non-native-born sons of Jacob, we Christians, we read this passage and we suddenly realize these instructions are for us. Suddenly for the Christians um, described above, the Torah is now something valuable, something relevant, and something worthy of study. And that's the point of my commentary today. Legalism and ethnic-driven identity both melt away in light of the truth of God's unchanging word. To be sure, physical sons of Jacob can now begin to correctly understand and accept those who are grafted in from the nations around them. Isn't that wonderful? I think it is. We're now poised to talk about our attitudes of the Torah. How should we feel in regards to this law that God has given us? Should we have a negative view of this law? Should we have just simply a neutral or passive view of this law? Or should we have a positive view of the commandments that God has given to us? Let's turn now uh, to this section, and this more or less is the end of my commentary, okay? So let's see what page we're on here. We are on page 12 near the bottom with a section entitled Torah, Negative, Neutral, or Positive. It's so true that Everybody who reads the Apostle Paul's letters has their own opinion about what he's writing. 
it would be so much nicer if we could have the Apostle Paul here in person to explain to us exactly what he means by some of his difficult sayings. However, that being said, since we don't have the Apostle Paul here, we do have the Spirit of God who inspired Paul to write the letters that we have uh, in our keeping. And so with that um, advantage, I believe that our opinions of Paul and his letters should first and foremost be influenced by the raw data found within the scriptures themselves. Since it only stands to reason that historically, when his letters were penned, the Tanakh was the only inspired corpus of literature available to him. And, I might add, the Tanakh was authored by the Holy Spirit of whom we do have relationship and fellowship and communion with today. Does that make sense? So, let's say it this way. If we want to understand what Paul is writing about, then we need to understand the Spirit who inspired Paul to write what he wrote. And if we want to understand the way the Spirit writes, then we need to look at the writings that the Spirit has already inspired. And we have them here with us today. We have the corpus of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, a.k.a. the Old Testament, a.k.a. the Tanakh. Thus, it's reasonable, wouldn't you agree, to presume that Paul would also expect his readers, particularly his Jewish ones, to hold similar views of the Tanakh. Paul quoted from the Tanakh. And as we read the Tanakh, and then we read Paul's writings, we need to understand that Paul is writing from his influence from the Tanakh, the writings that the Holy Spirit has already authored that Paul had familiarized himself with. If we, want to, if we want to understand Paul's writings, we need to understand the Tanakh that inspired him. So what should our view be of Paul's writings? What should our view be of the Tanakh, particularly? Should it be, number one, a negative view, as in the prevailing Christian view, that the Torah was given merely to contain and limit transgressions so that man didn't become excessively sinful? Is that how we should view the Tanakh or the Torah itself? Or should it be number two? Should it be kind of neutral, as in uh, what I describe as the Messianic Jewish view, that the Torah was given to expose sin for what it really was, namely the transgression of God's perfect standard of holiness? However, even though it um, provides us a definition of sin and exposing it, it doesn't do anything about it. It remains passive. Only the Spirit of God can truly change us, uh, but the, at least the Torah describes for us um, uh, you know, what this view is. It exposes it. Or, let's, let's describe a third view of the Torah. Should it be positive, as in recent Pauline authorship, that the Torah was given not merely to contain and limit, and not merely to expose, but to actually provide the means by which an existing covenant member might have his sins covered with an ultimate view towards the coming eternal sacrifice, Yeshua, the prophesied Messiah. Should that be our view of Torah? Did anyone out there listening to my podcast misunderstand these three views. Again, I'm working from the written notes. Uh, we're near the bottom of page 12 under the section entitled Torah Negative, Neutral, or Positive. And I've got the three written down there. Number one, negative. Number two, neutral. And number three, positive. Now let me tell you why I describe it this way. Torah as negative from the Christian point of view relegates the Torah to basically um, a policing aspect. It's a policeman. It, it contains and limits the transgressions that man has, but it doesn't take any steps towards exposing them. It simply it simply stops man from becoming excessively sinful. I call that negative. Even though it's performing a good function with, for man, it's negative because it doesn't fulfill the full intended purpose that God means for his words to um, uh, 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 you know, do for us in our community. So I call that negative because, again, from a Christian point of view, there's nothing in the Torah that really ceremonially or civilly I'm sorry, for, yeah, from a ceremonial or civil point of view, can speak into our lives today. And thus, because it's suppressed within standard Christian camps, I call that negative. The Messianic movement of today has taken the Torah and embraced it, and that's a good thing. However, they've only allowed the Torah to expose sin. Um, many Messianics don't quite fully understand that the Torah plays a much greater function than simply exposing sin. They understand it doesn't merely contain and limit like the Christian church. It actually speaks to their lives. But many in the Messianic movement still don't really embrace 
historically how the Torah was to help the community of Israel back in their day. They, they look at it as just, well, it exposed sin, therefore we need it. I mean, we need it because it gives us the definition of sin and the definition of holiness. But when you ask your average Messianic, how did the Torah um, actually help the person do something about their sin? Well, then they kind of shrug their shoulders. They don't know what to say. And so that's why we have to create this third view, or this third possibility, called positive. And that's where we actually look at the Torah from the historic point of view when it was given to ancient Israel 3,500 years ago, and we begin to realize that when God gave the Torah, it was a remedy for the existing state that man found him in. In other words, the Torah had within it the answers to the problems that man was facing. Not the Torah in and of itself, but rather the Torah coupled with the Spirit of God, coupled with the sacrifice that uh, Yeshua, or the sacrifice of Yeshua that it pointed towards. All of that packaged together gave the Torah a supernatural feature, one in which the people should and could avail themselves of back in the time period of the Tanakh. You guys following along with me so far? Negative as in the Christians look back into the Torah and say, oh well, those poor Jewish people, all they had was a Torah so they could it would show them how sinful they were, or it would contain and limit the transgressions that they did. It didn't really show them sin, it just it limited their sin so that they wouldn't really get out of control. Or neutral, like the Messianic Jews do today, Messianic communities, both Jew and Gentile, who say, oh well, those poor Jews, they had the Torah, and they were happy, they were, they were, it, was, it was a good thing that they had it to show them what sin was, uh, contain and limit, but merely show them, but they still had to wait for Yeshua to, to um, do any real um, uh, good for them, uh, other than just you know showing them how to live, but it, it didn't really do anything as far as remedy for sin. But um, you know, and I'm, of course, I'm working from a, a passage out of the uh, book of Galatians. But um, recent Pauline authorship has really began to seriously look at the Torah that was given 3,500 years ago and say, you know what, God gave solutions, and the solutions to man's problem, man's dilemma, the sin problem was, in fact, contained within the Torah. And what I'm referring to is the animal sacrifices, okay? So, drawing from the biblical principle of presenting two or three witnesses to strengthen an argument, what I'm going to do for this next section is I'm going to cite two passages from the five books of Moses, okay? Then I'm going to cite two passages from the prophets, and then I'm going to cite two passages from the writings. Why am I doing this? I'm going to do this so that we can allow these passages from the Tanakh, these witnesses, to the either buttress Paul's statement about the law in Galatians, or to pale in comparison to his, his uh, conclusion in Galatians. Now let me just tell you which verse I am referring to. Let me turn to Galatians here. I didn't have it opened earlier, but I should have. It is... Um, it is Galatians 3, verse 19, David Stern's version. Oh gosh, I can't read his version either. I've whited parts of it out. I apologize. Let me see if my uh, KJV has it here. Galatians 3, what I say, verse uh, 19. Galatians 3, 19. Okay, this works. Galatians 3, 19, KJV reads this way, quote, Wherefore, this is Paul, obviously, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Okay. And um, I don't have time to develop the full context of this particular POSIC. I do recommend going to my Galatians commentary. Let me just find it here and tell you where in my Galatians commentary I recommend you looking up the exact information that I'm talking about. I'm on my website now. Okay, exegeting Galatians. It's a PDF document, and it's going to be under section 8, which is entitled Galatians 3.19, Prevailing Christian and Messianic Jewish Perspectives, which if I scroll all the way down there, is on page... Oops. Looking for it now. It's on... It starts on page 18 of my Exegeting Galatians commentary there. And what I do is I quote that particular POSIC, Galatians 3.19, from, um, I think, like 10 different versions or something like that. 
well, not quite ten, maybe half a dozen different versions. And then I bring in a Christian, some Christian comments and David Stern's comments about it as well. But I've truncated that for this particular um, Shemini Atzeret commentary. All right? Let's turn to those Torah portions um, and look at that. Again, so no foul play uh, accusations may be leveled against me. You know, people say, well, you use this version, you use that version. And when I'm speaking with Jewish people, it becomes particularly um, important that I use a version which is trusted within Jewish standards. This typically means I must use a JPS version or something to that effect. So no foul play accusations may be leveled against me from the Jewish uh, camps. In my choice of verses from the Chumash, from the five books of Moses, I selected only verses, um, that, by the way, from, uh, let's see, which versions did I use? I believe I used the JPS versions. Um, here, but what I also did, let me see, did I use JPS? Uh, no, you know what, I think this is David Stern's version, uh, which is okay, that, that, that's okay. Uh, the point is that um, what I did is I only selected versions that refer to the written Torah as it pertains to its historical revelation. In other words, keep in mind that the Torah is comprised of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah proper, but Moses didn't actually live historically when Genesis, when the events in Genesis took place. Moses was born in the book of Exodus. But supernaturally, God was able to have him write down what took place even before he lived, catching up to the time period that he was born, and then continuing through his life and into the time period when he died. So it's really a rather interesting book if you think about it. So what I decided to do is, whenever you find the word law in the uh, Torah, the, the, the uh, Hebrew word Torah, then sometimes we understand that it's God's teaching given before the written revelation at Sinai, you know, Exodus chapter 19, Exodus chapter 20. But what I wanted to do is very specifically apply the word Torah for this next exercise. So what I did is in, these, in my choice of verses, I only selected verses that refer to the historical revelation of the written version of the Torah. In other words, I'm not, ref I'm not allowing for any just general teaching from God, like, like God gave Abraham his Torah, but it wasn't really um, the the corpus known as the Torah that, that Moshe had. I mean, I understand it had the same information in it, but there's something to be said about God giving Moses the law and having Moses write it down. Do you understand what I mean by that? There's, there is a legal importance to having this document written down, a written revelation, a written documentation of God's uh, dealings with man. So that's why I selected these particular verses, all right? So with that in mind, let's read the verses. From the Torah, um, I selected two verses, one from Deuteronomy 4, verse 5 through 8, and one from Deuteronomy 30, verse 10 through 14. The first verse, uh, the first passage reads, quote, Look, I've taught you laws and rulings just as Adonai my God ordered me so that you can behave accordingly in the land where you are going in order to take possession of it. Therefore observe them and follow them, for then all peoples will see you as having wisdom and understanding. When they hear of all these laws, they will say, This, this great nation is surely a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that, God, that has God as close to them as Adonai our God is whenever we call on him? What great nation is there that has laws and rulings as just as this entire Torah, which I'm setting before you today. End quote. Now this is Moshe speaking, and the reason I chose this verse is because Paul would have access to the same verse, these same passages as well. So when Paul is talking and asking the question in Galatians 3.19, why was the law given? Would Paul have had a negative view of the law? Would he have had a neutral view of the law? Keep in mind, historically, as, as given to Israel in his day. Or would he have a positive view of the law? I'm not talking about the opinions of the Torah today. I'm talking about from Paul's vantage point, when he read the passages that I just read in Deuteronomy, would Paul have had a negative, neutral, positive view of the Torah as had been given to his people 1,500 years earlier at Mount Sinai? And what would have influenced Paul's um, view of the law and caused them to write it and... Um, preserve it for us so that we can pick it up again when we read his letter to Galatians. That's the whole point of this exercise, okay? So I read the verses there, and we got to think as if we're Paul reading these verses and Paul asking himself, 
why did God give us why did God give our people this this written Torah and when we read this first passage we find that the Torah is spoken of as very very good did you catch it there um, the peoples would say wow you've got a great law and you've got a great God and uh, we want that look at the next passage Deuteronomy 30 verse 10 through 14 again we're Paul we're looking at this passage and we're about to write Galatians 3 19 for the rest of the Christian church or for anyone else to read in later generations quote this is Deuteronomy however all this will happen only if you pay attention to what Adonai your God says so that you obey his mitzvot and regulations which are written in this book of the Torah if you turn to Adonai your God with all your heart and, and all your being for this mitzvah which I'm giving you today is not too hard for you it's not beyond your reach it isn't in the sky so that you need to ask who will go up into the sky for us bring it to us and make us hear it so that we can obey it likewise it isn't beyond the sea so that you need to ask who will cross the sea for us bring it to us and make us hear it so that we can obey it on the contrary the word is very close to you in your mouth even in your heart therefore you can do it in quote if Paul were reading this passage in his day 2,000 years ago do you think that he would have said well gosh the Torah is too hard no one can do it why did God give us an impossible standard that no one can reach that no one can keep doesn't God know that no one can keep his laws why would God ask us to do it Obviously, these are rhetorical questions. From reading the passage, can't you now begin to see that Paul would not have formed such a view of the Torah because he just read what the Torah spoke about itself. This word is not too hard. It's very close to you in your mouth and in your heart. Therefore, you can do it. Whoever said you can't keep the Torah? Obviously, they've never read these passages. So again, let's keep going. From the prophets this time, the Nevi'im. This, is, this time it's from Joshua. The first one is from Joshua 1, uh, verses 7 and 8. Quote, Only be strong and very bold in taking care to follow all the Torah which Moshe, my servant, ordered you to follow. Do not turn from it either to the right or to the left. Then you will succeed wherever you go. Yes, keep this book of the Torah on your lips and meditate on it day and night so that you will take care to act according to everything written in it. Then your undertakings will prosper and you will succeed. End quote. Again, Paul is reading this passage. And 2,000 years ago, before the formulation of a Christian church who taught that the Torah is done away with, do you think Paul, after reading this passage, would say to himself, keep in mind, by the way, Paul is a quote-unquote Christian and lived in the time period after the, the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Yeshua. Okay? Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's reading this passage in Joshua. And he says, be strong and bold and take care to follow all of the Torah. Do you think Paul would say to himself, this can't be right. The Torah is done away with in Messiah. We no longer need to keep it. Why is God telling Joshua to keep it? Only to be done, done away with in Messiah. You see, Paul's formulation of the Torah cannot be uh, negative or neutral. It must be positive. Let's read another passage from the book of 1 Kings. Quote, Blessed be Adonai who has given rest to his people Israel in accordance with everything he promised. Not one word has failed of his good promise which he made through Moshe his servant. May Adonai our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or abandon us. In this way he will incline our hearts toward him, watch this, so that we will live according to his ways and observe his mitzvot laws and rulings which he ordered our fathers to obey. May these words of mine which I have used in my plea before Adonai be present with Adonai our God day and night so that he will uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel day by day. Then, watch this, then all the peoples of the earth, this sounds like Deuteronomy chapter 4, then all the peoples of the earth will know that Adonai is God. There is no other so be wholehearted with Adonai our God, living by his laws and observing his mitzvot as you are doing today. End quote. That's First Kings, Malachim Aleph, chapter 8, verse 56 through verse 61. Again, we're acting as if we're Paul and we just read this passage. After reading the passage, living in the time after Yeshua has already come. Do you think Paul would look at the Torah and say, gosh, this Torah is just a millstone around our neck? I don't think so. Let's read another one from the writings. This is time it's from Tehillim, Psalms, chapter 19, verse 8 through 12, or in your English Bibles, it's 
verse 7 through 11. Quote, The Torah of Adonai is perfect, restoring the inner person. The instruction of Adonai is sure, making wise the thoughtless. The precepts of Adonai are right, rejoicing the heart. The mitzvah of Adonai is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Adonai is clean, enduring forever. The rulings of Adonai are true. They are righteous altogether, more desirable than gold, than much fine gold, also sweeter than honey or drippings from the honeycomb. Through them, speaking of the Torah, through them your servant is warned in obeying them. There is great reward, speaking of the commandments. End quote. Again, Paul reading this passage out of the book of Psalms. Do you think Paul would have a negative view of Torah after reading this passage? Do you think he'd have simply a neutral view, kind of a passive view of Torah? Or would he have a positive view of Torah? Before you answer your question, let's read another one from the Ketavim, the writings. This is this time from Proverbs 6.23, just one Pasik. Quote, For the mitzvah is a lamp, Torah is light, and reproofs that discipline are the way of life. End quote. The word mitzvah means commandment. For the commandment is a light. Speaking of the Torah as a collective unit, the, the commandment is a light, light. The Torah, your version might say, the law is light. Gosh, if Paul were reading this and thought that the Torah was, was, was negative or neutral, then I'd have to say that Paul had a serious impairment when it came to understanding what God's Word is tr clearly trying to teach us here. Finally, let's get two more witnesses from the, um, from the apostolic... I'm sorry, uh, yeah, this time from the apostolic scriptures. In other words, um, we've already looked at the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings... I want to look at two passages from Paul himself as captured for us in the New Testament, the, uh, the writings. These are, of course, the witness of the Apostle Paul in books other than Galatians. What does Paul actually confess after studying the Torah, the Tanakh, the prophets, the writings? What does Paul actually say about the Torah? Let's pull two quotes, one from Romans and one from Timothy. The first one is Romans 7.12, So the Torah is holy, that is, the commandment is holy, just, and good, end quote. Wow. The Torah is holy, and the commandment is holy, just, and good. Sounds like Paul didn't have a negative view of Torah. Sounds like he had more than a neutral, passive view of Torah as well. Let's look at his uh, writings to uh, Timothy, his his, uh, his student. This time in Second Timothy three fourteen through 17 very familiar passage, quote, But you speaking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, recalling the people from whom you learned it, and recalling, too, how from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? Of course, he's talking about the Tanakh, what we Christians call the Old Testament. Let's keep reading. These Holy Scriptures, which can give you the wisdom that leads to deliverance through trusting in Yeshua the Messiah, all Scripture is God-breathed, and is valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living. Thus, anyone, anyone who belongs to God may be fully equipped, not just Jews, but anyone who belongs to God may be fully equipped for every good work. End quote. Did you see it there? That's 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. Paul is instructing Timothy to continue learning from the scriptures. What are the scriptures? The Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. I'm telling you right now, people, Paul did not have a negative or neutral view of Torah. Reading Galatians 3.19, when Paul asks rhetorically, what purpose serveth the law? We must conclude that um, he must have had a positive view of Torah. Okay, let's draw our conclusion to this commentary. It's about 43 minutes or so into the commentary. I'm not going to break this off. We're just going to uh, make it um, four parts, A, B, C, and D, to our commentary today. Okay, let's keep reading. This is the conclusion to my commentary to um, uh, Shmini Atzeret, okay? Top of page 15, quote, well, this is my commentary. Conclusions. This uh, next section is entitled Conclusion, Our Response. This is really to answer the question that we asked a long time ago. What is our responsibility to the covenants? What is our responsibility now that we understand that God's gracious laws have been given to advance our understanding of Him and enhance our relationship to Him? Torah observance is a matter of the heart, people. It's a matter of the heart. Why do I say it that way? 
Because when the Spirit of God circumcises your heart, then according to the book of Jeremiah, and the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Hebrews, then God's Spirit writes the Torah on your circumcised heart. And that's why doing the Torah, keeping the Torah, is a matter of the heart. It always has been, and it always will be. You see, the Torah proper instructs the people of Israel to, quote, love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your resources. That's, of course, from the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6.5. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins. This is where keeping the commandments begins. This is where guarding the commandments begins by loving God, by loving Him fully. That is to say, accepting Him on His terms. What does that mean today? It means accepting his means of covenant obedience. It means that you're not going to imagine that keeping the commandments mechanically or legalistically will earn you favor with God. It means, if you're Jewish, that God doesn't merely accept you because you're Jewish. He he loves you either way, don't get me wrong. But Jewish identity was never designed to secure one's place in the covenant. For today... Accepting God on his terms means acceptance of Yeshua, God's only son for Jew and non-Jew alike. You see, covenants require a response on the part of the follower. God gave his covenants, and therefore he expects a response. Remember the two covenants that we talked about earlier on in our commentary, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Hashem, for his part, has provided the promise of inheritance for all those who participate in the Avrahamic covenant. Faith in Yeshua is the proper response to this covenant that God extends to man. Do you understand that? God extends covenant responsibility or covenant response, uh, covenant benefits to men through the promises that he made to Abraham. The proper response from everyone who wishes to be accepted into God's covenant is faith. The nature, however, of the Mosaic Covenant, by comparison, is blessing, maintenance, and enjoyment of the promise. You see, it complements the already existing Avrahamic Covenant. So for them that wish to participate in the Mosaic Covenant, the proper response to this covenant is obedience. But it's obedience that is already grounded in the faith that one has already made in God himself. Are you beginning to see it? The Avrahamic covenant was designed to come before the Mosaic covenant, but the Mosaic covenant was not designed to um, displace or uproot the Avrahamic covenant. A previous, a later, a latter covenant cannot displace a previous one. And to be sure, that's exactly what Paul says in his commentary to Galatians, um, in uh, the same chapter, chapter three, uh, a verse earlier. For if the I'm sorry, um, uh, two verses earlier, chapter three, verse seventeen. Here's what I'm saying: the Torah, which came into being four hundred thirty years later, does not nullify an oath sworn by God, so as to abolish the promise. Paul clearly says that the Mosaic covenant doesn't uproot the Abrahamic covenant. Using Calvacol argument, light from heavy, we can also understand that the the Messianic covenant, the one that Yeshua instituted with his sacrificial death, cannot displace the Mosaic covenant people. It just doesn't make any sense for us to say that Christ has done away with the Torah any more than it would say, make sense to say that Moses did away with Abraham. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's quite simple if we understand the order of the covenants that God gave us and we understand our proper response to the covenants. So I guess what I want to do is I just want to close my commentary and make an impassioned plea to those of you listening to my commentary. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, listen up. You know what? We can study the Torah year after year. This, this is for me too, by the way. I'm not just speaking to you guys. I'm speaking to myself. We can study the Torah year after year, but if we fail to grasp this central truth, then our study of the Torah is in vain. It was never Hashem's desire to have his children study the Torah as a means unto itself. To be sure, it's sad, but it's true. Many well-meaning people, Jewish and Gentile alike, are doing just that. They're just studying the Torah for its own sake. And in my opinion, this is tantamount to idolatry. The Torah is not the goal. Faith in Yeshua is the goal. The Torah is, is, is a tool in the hands of the Spirit of God to bring the individual to 
the intended goal. How dare we turn God's holy word into something that it was not intended to be? I want to challenge the reader and the listener not to fall into this very easy and dangerous trap, okay? The Torah is wonderful, people. It's wonderful. That's why we call this festival Simchat Torah, rejoicing in the law. Yeah, we rejoice in it. But we as believers should be worshiping the God of the Torah and His Messiah, not worshiping the Torah itself. Rejoicing in the Torah? Yes, by all means, because it is there that we find the promises that God gives to us and we find the solutions to the problems plaguing a heart that is clouded by sin. In Messiah, there certainly is something to rejoice about. The promises of Yeshua are contained within the pages of the Torah. Study to show yourself approved? You bet! That's exactly what Paul told his student Timothy. And that's exactly what the Spirit of God is telling us today. The goal or the aim of the Torah is the Messiah. Read Romans 10.14 again very carefully. How else are we to recognize who we are? Amen? Amen. With that, let's draw our study of this uh, commentary to close. And I'm going to recite a special closing this time. It's not the normal closing that I would have with my normal Torah portions. In Hebrew it says, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Torat Emet Uvsurat Yeshua La'amu Yisrael Ulchol Ha'amim Al Yadei Bano Yeshua HaMashiach Adonainu the English is, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who gives the Torah of truth and the good news of salvation to his people Israel and to all the peoples through his Son, Yeshua, the Messiah, our Lord. May your study of Torah be filled with blessing and joy. Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.